And we are live. What's up, everyone? This is your host, Camden McKinnis, and we are back with another new and exciting episode. I will be interviewing dating professional Linda Gross. She's the author of the smash hit book titled Mastering Women, The Definitive Guide to Understanding and Being Effective with Women, as well as another book called Hitched in 90 Days or Less, which is a book that she wrote for women who are, tr- who are having a tough time finding men who are willing to not only date them, but also become uh, their husband. Um, but tonight we will be discussing everything we can about why men today are failing with women, MGTOW, why, why unattractive women just can't stop hitting on you, and what you can do to stop it and get better quality women. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Skills. So this is going to be an excellent interview. And um, Linda, can you just kind of just uh, give a little bit more of a um, detailed background about exactly who you are and kind of how you got into the whole dating tips thing? Absolutely. Back in my college days, I, I do have a degree in psychology from UCLA. And who knew that decades later, I'd be delving back into uh, my academic files and knowledge to jump into this information. Um, Well, how I got started into it, I was in a long-term marriage. I got out of the marriage and I thought, oh, brother, where have all the good guys gone? And uh, I just, you know, just kind of in a therapeutic way, I started writing a blog. I wrote a daily column and it was called Dating Tips for Men. And I just started writing away. And after a couple of months, my readers would, you know, it grew and grew. And my readers would say, oh, my gosh, the information that you're giving is golden. You have got to package this up and put it in some kind of book format or audio format or something. You've got to um, put it in a format where people can access it again and again and again. So I said, okay. So I started writing, I started my journey writing the book, and it took me about 18 months or so to write the book. And I combined both areas of knowledge. So the one area was, I uh, took my academic research, and I scaled it all the way back down to caveman days 10,000 years ago. And I wanted to find out how has dating uh, differed between caveman days and what we're doing now. And what I found out was not much has changed at all. I know people don't want to hear that, but the age-old question, is it nature or nurture? Most people think it's nurture, meaning your environment and how you're raised. But I tend to believe, after all my research, that it's mainly nature, meaning that we act the way we act because of biology, because of DNA, because we are pre-programmed to act and react in a certain way for the continuance of the species. So not all that much has changed in 10,000 years. So we can listen to the media, we can listen to the news, we can listen to what our schools are telling us or whatever, and it's just a bunch of hooey. DNA is DNA, and we're programmed with certain features, and that's it. Now, unlike... uh, Unlike animals, we do have a higher sense. We do have human capabilities, which is our cognitive ability. So we can take our animal instincts, if we want to, and override them and cancel them out. But guess what? Most people are lazy. 95% of the time, we're not doing that. We're just going off of our animal instincts because why bot why mess with a good thing right so but if you if you want to override those that natural dna you can 
but you'd have to think about it and put some thought to it and proactively go down that path. Otherwise it's not going to happen. Yeah. So anyway, part of, part of the book is based on my academic research. And then I started writing the book. I got to about six or seven chapters and I said, you know what? No one's going to want to, you know, have me stand on the soapbox talking about DNA and all this kind of stuff. Let me take it to the average guy on the street. And so I married the academic part with, um, I interviewed over 20,000 men uh, while I was writing my column, while I was writing the book. And I wanted to know what was important to the average guy on the street. And by guy on the street, I did this through the internet. Then of internet, sometimes it was a phone call. Sometimes it was an email. Sometimes it was an instant message. Sometimes it was chatting. Sometimes it was texting. I used any and all of those features to interview these guys. And I got to, on the same question, I got 500 responses that were exactly the same way. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Let me keep going. And then I got a thousand answers answered exactly the same way. And I thought, wow, this is, it's too much of a coincidence just to be random, just for it to be environment and nurture. And so I kept going and kept going, not because I had to, because it was just so fascinating to me. Back in my college days, most um, college studies are usually, the sample size is usually around 1,500 to 2,000. So anyway, I kept going because it was fascinating and I like kept going until I got to 20,000. And what I found out over and over again was we act and react in a certain way and it's all based on biology. So there is no deviation from it. There's, there's no coincidence to it. It just is what it is. It's not that one sex is better than the other. You know, that actually one of my premise, main premises in my book, in fact, it's I take the full first chapter to explain just how different the sexes are. They're different for a reason. You know, Mother Nature is not stupid. If Mother Nature wanted the sexes to be the same, we would have only had one sex. We would all be amoebas, but we're not amoebas. So we're here to complement each other. We're here to bring forward our strengths. And, you know, the opposite sex helps us with our weaknesses and we make each other better and that's the way it was designed. And by making each other better, you unite, you have offspring, and guess what? That leads to what Mother Nature wants is the continuance of the species. And that's actually uh, very important, which you had mentioned earlier, um, and I completely forgot to mention in the introduction how you interviewed over 20,000 men, and um, that is very important because um, by doing that, you're able to remove as much of the bias as, as you as a woman may uh, hold when it comes to, and what a lot of women hold when it comes to the nature of men. When, when I uh, try to speak with a lot of women about the actual true nature of men, it's always like, it's all, oh, bullshit, not all men are like that. And maybe there are some exceptions to the rule. But overall, you know, we aren't, you know, human beings aren't as special and unique from one another as we would all like to think. And so, and you, you dove into biology, but when it comes to biology, men and women want different things and they're kind of looking for uh, certain characteristics. Now, what do you think is most important, the most important trait that women are looking for when they're trying to find the perfect man to pair with and instinctually mate with? For a woman, a woman needs confidence like she needs air. 
And the reason why that is, is because in general, men are built bigger, badder, stronger, faster than we are. And the reason why is to help protect us from a threat. Now, the threat could be maybe danger from another animal, maybe, you know, the lion has entered the village or something like that, or a bear or something that's going to cause a threat, or it might be a weather threat. Maybe it's an avalanche or a hurricane or a drought or, you know, who knows what. But anyway, there is a threat there. So she wants to have somebody that will have her back that will protect the women and children because, you know, quote unquote, we are the weaker sex in, um, in general terms. I mean, I'm not talking about Layla Ali, but in general terms, for the most part, women, you know, men are sturdier than we are. So, you know, they can lift big objects, you know, if there's a flood, maybe they can lift the trees and lift the branches and, you know, rescue the women and children and, you know, get them to the shoreline, you know, get them out of danger. So that's the main reason why, you know, threats aren't as prevalent, or we have, you know, governmental agencies that help us with these types of threats. But so what that gene is still there. So uh -huh. despite what the woman is saying that she wants a sensitive guy and she wants a guy that cries at the movies and, you know, all this kind of <laughs> stuff, it's all, it's all horse pucky because at the end of the day, she's still looking for that quality. Maybe you don't have to, you know, remove uh, the tree from the stream, but in, in everyday practical life, she wants somebody who has her back. You know, she wants somebody that if there is a threat, maybe there's a random guy that's harassing her. And, you know, she wants her man to stand up and address the guy and say, look, dude, back off. This is my woman or some not to those words exactly, but the demeanor of dealing with the other guy with the with the possible threat. That's what she wants. Why do women seem to lie um, to themselves and to other men about that? Like, like you said, they, they like to tell guys that they want this sensitive dude that's going to bring them flowers every day and cry at the movies. And this is why I'm very happy to have you on the show um, compared to a lot of female dating coaches because I feel like a lot of female dating coaches would rather say what sounds nice instead of the actual truth. So why is it that women seem to kind of not be honest about the true their their true nature i think they have been brainwashed and i think a lot of uh, children today are raised by single mothers and the single mothers you know although they might have good intentions they really don't know so they're raising both of their children to be female like because they don't have enough of a male influence to impart with their children especially their male children so I think it's just female rhetoric. Like if, for example, if the mother likes to cry and be sensitive, she automatically assumes that both, uh, both sex children will also, uh, you know, do well by crying and being sensitive at the movies or what have you. So it's just a lack of reference. It's a lack of having a strong father figure in the home to say, no, it's not like that. Figure has other attributes other than crying that he brings to the table maybe he's bringing his daughters um, like how to do math and science or how to read maps you know another quality that's equally important to the table to impart to his children so 
I think a lot of it has to do with this past generation has been raised by single mothers and they just don't have both sides of the coin. Very true. Um, for the larger part of my childhood, up until I was about 10, my dad and my mother, they had divorced. So my dad wasn't necessarily in the picture until my mom got remarried. Uh, me and the stepfather weren't that close, but it was nice having some masculine energy around kind of, you know, I still suck at with fixing things and putting things together, but he taught me the bases with tools and all that other crap. Um, yeah. But would you say that the single mother home, and, and this isn't to knock single mothers, but would you say that that is the breeding ground for the nice guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, you, you'll hear many, many single mothers tell their sons, oh, be a nice guy. Oh, be a sensitive oh God, guy. Yeah. And I'm all for being a gentleman and having manners. That's a whole nother realm. I mean, I want you to be a gentleman and have manners. I want you to be civil. But that's a whole different definition than nice guy. Nice guy basically can't close the deal. That's to, that's the definition of my nice guy. Is they want in, but they don't know how to get in. So they figure, okay, well, if I paint your living room, that's a nice gesture and you're going to want to have sex with me. Or if I'm going to go tire shopping with you, that's a nice guy uh, gesture. So you'll think so highly that I spent the last two hours going tire shopping with you that you're going to have sex with me. They don't know how to close the deal. So they do all these nice things on the hope that she will follow through and reward him in this way. It doesn't work that way. Because, because from the Sorry. woman's point of view, it's okay. So you went tire shopping. That she doesn't read more into it. That that's the end of the story for her. And you you actually see this whole nice guy thing kind of uh, um, play out in other areas of, of his life, especially with the culture of everyone gets a participation trophy and all exactly. and, and all that stuff. And you say the nice guy, um, he doesn't know how to close. And it's and I think a lot of it has to do with our culture with with the nice guys. That the nice guy mentality is he wants everybody to win. You now if 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 he wins, he wants the other guy to win as well and, and, and he wants everybody to hold hands and you know and that's that just isn't that just isn't the <laughs> uh way that life is, especially in dating. It's very a very competitive thing at any moment, especially with technology. I can talk to a girl today that I meet on the street and by the time she opens up her phone, she can forget about me because she just had like forty guys on Tinder that just swiped right on her and are now you know, saying hello or sending her pics or whatever stuff guys do. And she could forget about me in like two seconds. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, the thing with the, the soccer trophies, it's not a picture of real life because real life, there are winners, there are losers. So rather than saying, okay, you know, Johnny's team didn't win. Why did the other team win? Well, you know, they did this and they did that. Maybe you only practice once a week, but maybe the other team, they were out there practicing three times a week. Or maybe the other team had a better coach or maybe the other team did more drills or like whatever the story is, there's got to be some reason why the other team won rather than giving everybody on Johnny's team a sock, you know, a soccer trophy, expecting them to win at, at real life. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work in real life, in your career, in your job. And it certainly doesn't work that way with women. So, do you think, especially given the way that our, our society and culture is set up, um, for, for these guys who have, you know, kind of been morphed and shaped into this nice guy through 
through their younger age ages um, and growing up through grade school and high school. Do you think that when they get uh, like into their early to late twenties, do you think that they have a chance at changing their ways and kind of not necessarily turning it in, but kind of getting rid of that passive feminine weakness that has kind of been bred in his face and said that this is the way to be? It's not going to change on its own. It's not going to change because time is involved. I mean, one has to be an active participant in one's life. So the best way to get there is is either A, to develop confidence. And if you don't have confidence already, one of the best ways to get confidence is figure out what you like. Let's say you like to play guitar or let's say you like to play golf or whatever it is. And then take that like that hobby, that passion, that interest, whatever it is you want to call it, and work on it at least 30 to 60 minutes a day. Get really, really good at that attribute. Get to be a great golfer. Get to be a a great at the guitar or whatever it is is your passing fancy, right? And then once you build that confidence, that confidence automatically spills over to women. You will have that gene. It's yours for life. So that's one way to do it. Another avenue to do it is get around a male mentor. Now, maybe dad wasn't in the picture. Maybe you can go to grandpa. Maybe there's an uncle. Maybe there's a sports coach or a religious figure or maybe a coworker or somebody that you look up to and admire that you can learn from. Another way to do it is to get a male mentor. And then thirdly, hang out with guys. Because you kind of like learn a little bit here and there from what worked with this guy, what didn't work with that guy. And, you know, you pick up street knowledge like that. Hmm. And we we are, um, you had mentioned a few things about dating in, in there, and I do want to transition to that. But first, I'd like to ask you about the current relationship between men and women in society um, with, with the rise of, well, feminism has been around for a long time. But now there's this new group of people, they're especially they're very active on the internet, and they're called MGTOW, men going their own way. And first, I want to get your opinion on MGTOW, what, what you think. Do you think that this will be a harmful thing for the male and female relationship in society in the long run? No. I mean, I think it's a retaliation. Feminism has gone, made the pendulum swing so far in this direction, whereas MGTOW, they had to do a pushback. So they went completely in the opposite direction Are both of them healthy? I mean, are each of them healthy? No, not really. But maybe by going into opposite extremes, maybe we'll restore balance in some way. So the men today, and I don't blame them, they're just revolting. They they either don't want to participate or there's another group that just wants to be an a-hole. That's not the answer either, but I know a lot of dating coaches are just telling their guys to just be an a-hole because women like it. Just take it. Just Mm -hmm. see them once, do your business, and then move on and dump them. Be mean to the girl and demean the girl and what have you because that's what girls like. Mm -hmm. That's not the right answer either. I think a lot of those dating coaches say to be an a-hole because they don't know how to do it for real. In my book, you will find out the real way to get through to women. So there's, I, you don't have to lie. You don't have to deceive. You don't have to do any of those player moves, and you can get the girl for real. And my techniques, you can use them for either your one-night stand or all the way on the other end of the spectrum, which is your forever girl. 
So the techniques work for both ends plus everything in between. Mm-hmm. Linda actually has a show called the Men's Advocate Show. She's been very uh, vocal um, with things like men's rights and helping guys out with with discussion about legal issues that men may face after divorces and all of that kind of good stuff. So, and you had brought up your book, and your book is absolutely phenomenal. A lot of people these days who write a book, and I don't want to really knock too many people, but a lot of people when they write a book and they post on Amazon, it's about. 20, 30 pages, and it's a lot of useless information. But you, of course, you interviewed, you know, 20,000 men, you know a lot about the topic, and you really break things down, and you go into pretty much, I think, every area of dating and relationships that are relevant in today's world. So let's let's uh, start off on uh, your books and some of the basics that you have in your book. In uh, your book, you have the chalkboard formula. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that can help men with their dating life? Absolutely. By the way, my my book is available uh, on Amazon. It's either in a paperback version or an ebook version. Um, I know a lot of my guys write me letters back and they say, oh, my God, you know, I have to go back and get the paperback version because there's just too much information here. And a lot of the guys are taking a yellow highlighter and reading the book four and five times. A lot of people have written me to say, oh, my gosh, this is my new Bible. They say that anything and everything that comes up with regard to women it's in that book. And in fact, a lot of men are using some of the techniques to use it in business. Maybe they have a female coworker, or maybe they have a female relative that they don't get along with that well. You can use some of these techniques to apply it to non-dating situations as well. So it all works. So anyway, to fast forward to the chalkboard formula, basically what I found out from my academic research is that there are four characteristics that if the guy, it's my premise that if the guy does these four characteristics, he can win over any woman, anywhere, anytime. And it's uh, regardless of race, color, creed, religion, geography, it doesn't matter what language she speaks or where she lives. Like I say, most of this stuff is biology driven and that's why it works. People would write to me and, well, how do you know it applies to anyone? Aren't women so complicated? Aren't women (laughs) so different? But when you break it down to the biology level, I'm giving you the magic key that unlocks that lock. When you have it broken down in such easy terms and terms that are so easily doable, it's a head slap. Wow, how come this stuff is not common knowledge? It's so easy to do, but it's not common knowledge. And it's not intuitive. It's not something that you would just wake up one day and say, oh, yeah, I got to have this trait. So the number one uh, trait that I mentioned a moment ago is confidence. That's absolutely number one. Got to have that like she needs air. The second trait that you have to have is connect with her. You have to find some kind of common ground to have a discussion about whatever it is. You know, I like golf. You like golf. I like, you know, play my guitar on the weekends. You like to play your guitar on the weekends. You have to find something in common. Even if you just met her for the first time, it's been five minutes before you open your mouth look around the room and see what you both share in common it might be that wow that customer you know over at that far table is really giving the waitress a hard time that might be your icebreaker it's something that you have in common you have a shared interest or a shared experience use that to start your conversation it's it's really easy to do and i go into more detail in the book like how to do the 
connect with her part. But that's basically the, the essence of it. Step number three is caring. You have to give a rat's tail. If you don't, if you don't give a rip about her, she's not your girl. Put her back in the, in the stream and let her go find another fish. She's not for you. So you have to be motivated. You have to care. And then lastly, and this is the trait that most players don't have, is you have to have character. That's why a good guy will win at the end of the day because compared to a player, a good guy compared to a player does have confidence. But it's what I call fake confidence. It's being cocky. It's being arrogant. He knows he's got to throw his swagger around to get the girl's attention. Uh, does that work? Of course it works. It'll work for a little while. It's short-lived. It might work for a couple of months, three months, whatever, but it does work. In the book, I teach you how to get confidence for real. So you feel it in your gut. You know you have it, and it'll be a lifelong trait that you will carry in any room, in any situation, not just in dating, but you know, you can carry it to your career or uh, other interpersonal relationships. So step number two and three, the connect with her and caring. The player knows he needs those steps. But again, it's a false premise. He's doing the connect with her and the caring, but he's lying and deceiving with it. And eventually he she'll sense it. He, right. Eventually she will sense it. And that's what brings us to number four, which is character. You have to walk the walk, talk the talk. You have to do it for real. If it's not for real, she'll eventually sense that it's not legit and a good girl is going to let you go because <laughs> she's, she's not going to put up with that. A so, girl is really care with herself, yeah. Yeah, the player, like I say, the player will get along, get steps one through three. It'll last them two, three months. So if you're eventually looking to build your own repertoire, build your own character, do these things for real, because you can apply them not only in dating, but in any area of your life. Very true. And it's, it's, it's also really important that last part, uh, character, because a lot of guys, um, and I've, I've done it when I was a bit younger, but a lot of the guys that I know, they're willing to like lie about their job or whatever that they're doing. If, like if they're unemployed, they'll say they work at this place or that place. And it's always just better to be honest, because eventually she's going to find out, right? So Right. Or you're going to trip yourself up. You know, you're, it's hard <laughs> to remember all your lies, right? Unless you're writing it all down in your cell phone somewhere. It's just, you're going to either trip yourself up or it's, it's going to... too much work to begin with. <laughs> yeah. It's just easier to just be clean and do it correctly the first time out. So what about men who are, you know, they're pretty confident. They aren't necessarily shy, but they just have a hard time. I guess you kind of touched on this. There are certain ways to break guys, but they just kind of have a hard time getting over that anxiety of, of uh, walking over there. And I know a lot of people, they um, do things like they, you know, they go out there and they kind of sign up for these like $10,000 dating boot camps. But you say you don't necessarily have to do stuff like that. What are some tips for some guys that are just really, really shy and they need help? overcoming that anxiety. Yeah, the, the connect with you part is so important. And that's the part that that person should focus on in my book. 
I was one of those shy people. I was shy until I was probably about 30 years old. And one day I woke up and I thought, I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't know how to talk to anybody. I go into a small room, small group of people, I freeze up. I go in one-on-one, I freeze up. I go into a large group of people. I free- This is ridiculous. I got to like get over this. So for me, what I did was I joined a networking group and we met once a week at 7am for breakfast and you had to stand up and just do impromptu a 30 second sales pitch on whatever your product or service was. You can go to a speaking group like Toastmasters. But the problem with it, and that does help, it'll get you over your shyness. The one step that I like better about a networking group is you get feedback. Whereas Toastmasters is just one direction. You're just speaking, speak, you're just practicing speaking. Whereas in a networking group, if that person in the audience now bought your product or service, it's a two-way connection. You've not only have you made an effective message with your product or service, they bought it. So you know that you're being effective. So that's what worked for me. I did that for, I think, about 18 months, two years, whatever it was. And that completely cured me of my shyness. So I would say get in some sort of speaking arrangement. And if you can find something that has feedback, all the better. Another way I did it was I I wrote a daily blog in the process of writing my book. And that was also two ways because I wrote the blog, but then I had hundreds of people commenting on it. So I got the feedback. This sucks. This doesn't suck. I like this part of the blog. I didn't like that part of the blog. You got the interaction. So anything that you can do that is a two-way interaction will definitely break you out of the out of the shyness thing. And you have to realize people who are shy are selfish because you're in your own little bubble. You're only thinking about yourself. You're only thinking about your own feelings. And you're in a bubble. So you can't be in a bubble and be social. In other words, in order to be effective with being social, you kind of have to place yourself in the other person's shoes. Or you have to be in a position to, like if you're in sales, you have to be in a position where I give you something and you give me something back. In other words, I give you a product or service of value. And in turn, you're going to buy my product or service. So it's a two-way communication thing. So all of those techniques will break the person from their shyness. It's actually really funny. I actually never looked at it like that as a a shy person is actually being selfish. I remember, um, and sometimes I am shy or sometimes I'm just, I'm just not that much of a super social person um, unless I absolutely need to be. And then I figure my way out to kind of turn it on. But it's very funny because when I was extremely like painfully shy, I had this idea that when I entered a room, like everybody was just like staring at me or everybody was just like thinking about me or like uh, everyone's judging me or everyone's doing that. Like I was like, I had this sense without knowing it, I had this sense. Like I was like the center of the world or like the center of the universe or the center of the room. And everybody was just fixated on what Camden is doing and what Camden is saying, what Camden is wearing. And I was now that you brought that up, I, I just thought that I had to point that out. But because when you're, you're shy, you're just into your own head and your own thoughts you're mm-hmm. not even really looking and paying attention to what the other person is doing i mean so, maybe so, your assumption is correct but you know what maybe it's not maybe they're not and it usually maybe, isn't. <laughs> maybe they're not thinking that at all <laughs> mm-hmm. but you think they are so that's why i call it 
a selfish uh, behavior. Very true. I wanted to go into the next part. I had a friend who used to always complain about this specific thing. And he was a very good looking guy. He's a very confident guy, almost too confident, very cocky. But he used to always complain about this. Um, he used to always say to me, for whatever reason, and I quote, ugly chicks are the only ones that seem into <laughs> me. And in your book, you actually talk about that. And I just want to know, what is your take on that for, for the people who don't? Like, why is this happening to him? You know, it's kind of like the same ritual as the soccer trophy kid. I think the Lena Dunhams of the world, I'm large and in charge. And, you know, you should like me for my sparkling personality. You shouldn't be looking at what I look like. And so I think a lot of the brainwashing um, has come to women that back in my day, you were shamed if you didn't keep yourself up and you weren't physically fit and combed your hair and you kind of looked nice, smelled nice or whatever. You know, you looked and acted like a girl, okay? <laughs> now it's perfectly okay if she's eating 12 McDonald's and she's drinking four Diet Cokes and you're supposed to like her because of her personality. You're supposed to look beyond smelling and looking nice like a nice girl. So it's just kind of like the soccer kids with the trophies. They're giving out trophies to everybody. They, I think the social media today wants to brainwash the guys that the Lena Dunhams of the world are not only okay, but endorsed. Mm -hmm. In a strange way, it's almost as if when it comes to dating, men's confidence has went down and women's has kind of went up or women and I see a lot of really good looking guys and I'm not going to be like, oh, oh, they shouldn't be with or whatever, like if they actually like the girl. But I know a lot of guys who go and flirt with unattractive women that they know that are unattractive or date unattractive women that they really aren't that attracted to just to get laid. And yeah. I think that too really does contribute a lot to it as well. Because if women know that if women know that any guy will sleep with them pretty much, that's really going to boost their confidence a lot, make them feel really entitled. Uh, so how can men who want to date above average looking women, what do they need to do? Like, like, do they need the fancy watch, the car, the house in the Hamptons and so on? What can they do to start dating the above average looking women? Yeah, in my book, I don't ever talk about money or status or any of that kind of stuff because I don't think you need it. It's not the money that women are going after. It's the confidence that that money represents. He didn't get that level of money for no reason. He got that level of money because he's confident and he put in the hard work to get there. So he might have had one step forward, three steps back in his career, one step forward, three steps back. He might have been knocked down a thousand times, but people don't see all that. They think, oh, well, she's just in it because she wants the money. So if you're only going to attract a gold digger, I guess that might be an okay assumption to have. But a good girl, a good that you eventually want to be with, she really won't be in it for the money. She'll be in it for character and your perseverance and what and the blood, sweat and tears that it took you to get to that level of money or status or fame or whatever it is. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes, it makes perfect sense. It's a big difference. For example, they often misquote that quote in the, in the Bible. It's not money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It's the love of money is the root mm -hmm. of all evil. It's like two totally different things. Completely. So it's very parallel to what I'm saying with this. It's what the money and the status represents, which all boils down to confidence. So if you're a, if you're a guy, I think it's a misconception because 
guys are into looks because that's biologically, that's how they're engineered because they want somebody that looks good, looks fit to produce their offspring. That's, that's what a guy's make genetic makeup is for, right? Mm-hmm. So they think that if the woman is really good looking, that she's going to be so selective that he's not even going to have a chance. But that is not true because that's not how women think. That's how men think, but that's not how women think. Women do go after personality, and the number one personality characteristic is your confidence, of course, like we talked about. So what ends up happening is all these super good-looking women, they're sitting at home on a Friday night twiddling their thumb because nobody is asking them out. Because they're afraid. The guys are too afraid. Yeah, they're all, because they're all looking at each other thinking, oh, she's got 20 dates. And really, the opposite is happening. It's because nobody is approaching these good-looking women. They're sitting home doing nothing on a Friday night when actually you should start off with the good-looking women because your odds are better. God, that is so, yeah. It, it's actually very funny. Um, in my, it's, the Le- it's the Lena Dunhams of the world who have this <laughs> super inflated confidence. <laughs> and in reality, they're the ones that are not getting the dates because nobody wants them because they don't look good. But kind of like all twisted and backwards. So the advice to a guy is I would say start with the good-looking girls. Start with the good-looking girls. That's, that's yeah. And now that I really think about it, I remember it was just summer. I saw this really good-looking girl, beautiful Italian girl, and I walked up to her, and I started talking to her, and I asked her, like, I just stopped her, like, because I had to, and I was like, you're very, like, you're very gorgeous, and I want to go out with you. And she was in shock. And I was like, hasn't a guy ever asked you out before? And she was, uh, she like, has a guy ever stopped you and asked you out on like the street before? Because, because it was like her reaction was just like, what the hell? Like, like she was flattered, but she was also very taken back by it. She's like, no, this doesn't happen to me. And I was talking See? to her later. Yeah, and I was talking to her later on, and she pretty much said that all of her ex boyfriends were people that she had like known uh, for, within her social cir- circle, never just like some random dude that just took a liking to her just by seeing her and just wanted to go out with her. Right. So it's very funny though that she brought it up. So from that point, after the guy gets the date, let's talk a little bit about the phone game, texting, calling, etc. First, when a guy calls and he doesn't receive a phone call back, what do you think is going on through the woman's head why she wouldn't call him back? You mean not being called back to say within 24 hours or how, what kind of time or just like uh, just just like in in general like i know a lot of guys who complain about getting the phone number and mm-hmm. sometimes they leave a message sometimes they do end up speaking with the girl for a short period of time she agrees to kind of you know to kind of keep talking to him and possibly go out with them and then she never ends up calling him back like ever oh not calling back ever well she could be tied up with some other guy she could be maybe she just broke up and she's just not emotionally ready to get back into something with it with a new person yet could be grandma just died or could be a whole host of reasons not the least of which you just didn't do it for her mm-hmm. do you think that especially in today's uh dates with the smartphone with texting and stuff like that do you think that a phone call would be a way to kind of stand out instead of texting somebody? Oh, absolutely. I know a lot of guys hide behind texting or social media, but it's I think it's very impersonal. I mean, it's it's good to do it a, for a little while, maybe like two weeks or whatever, just to get to know the person a little bit. But yes, you will be a standout if you make the phone call. 
mm-hmm. because there's more risk involved, I guess, for a guy doing a phone call. Oh, and definitely. Set yourself apart. I mean, you know, start with the other stuff first, get a comfort level, get a dialogue going. But once you've done some of the preliminary stuff, just go for it. Go for the phone call. Mm-hmm. And what about, like, let's talk about when a woman flakes. She decides, like, last minute, she decides to call the guy or text him and say she's not going to show up or just not show up at all. From your experience when you talk to some of your girlfriends and from your experience, if you've ever done this, what do you think that the man has done wrong in order for that to happen or do you think it's just something in many cases he just didn't do anything wrong at all? Oh, he did. He usually did something wrong. Usually it's not enough confidence or not enough connect with her. So if it were me and I canceled at the last minute, I probably, if I still wanted to see you, I'd probably be setting the new date right then and there, or at least within the next 24 hours, I would set the new date. Let's say, I don't know, my boss called me away or whatever, and I have to work late or whatever it is, you know, I can't make, I can't meet that meeting with you at five o'clock for some reason. Mm -hmm. So when I call you to cancel, I would probably set up the new date right away or at least within 24 hours. If I'm not doing that, then you haven't done it for me. If I cancel the date and then don't rebook and like three days goes by, that's not a good look. That's not a good sign. Are there anything that you think that a man can do to kind of change it to kind of uh, win that girl back? Yeah, the connect with you is very important. I mean, I would not use lines like, oh, you look gorgeous, or you're the best looking girl I've ever seen. You know, I would not go there because she's already getting thousands of those types of compliments. Not that you can't say it ever. I mean, of course, you're going to say it some of the time. But if you find mutual interest to talk about, it'll hold her attention because In psychology, we call this mirroring. If they're putting out a certain demeanor, you're matching that demeanor. If she's crossing her leg to the left, then you cross your leg to the left. If she's putting her arm over over here on the table, you put your arm, I mean, don't tell her what you're doing, of course. You put (laughs) your arm over here on the table. So you can do mirroring with language too. So if you like go to this particular coffee shop because on Tuesday nights they have live music Oh, really? I like to go to hear live music and I go to that same coffee shop. And that gives you a common interest and it gives you the basis of bonding. So the, she feels accepted. She feels acknowledged. She feels listened to. These are all qualities that women really, really like. And that's what will draw them in because you have you guys have common interests. And you also, you have this one part in your book, and this is going to piss a lot of guys off who have been cheated on, but you say that when a man is cheated on, it's the man's fault. Why is that exactly? It's a given that a guy is going to get off. It's a given that he's, oh, your needs are, are going one way or the other. 99% of the time, good success rate. <laughs> and aren't so high for, for women. So you have to realize that her body were much slower timetable than yours. I mean, a guy can get off in 20 seconds, 30 seconds, or maybe at the most two minutes, where her body is slower. It might take 20 minutes to get her there. So I think a lot of times, you know, when she's cheating, it's because... She's usually cheating because... Because it's already a given that the guy is going to have sex and is going to get off. I mean, 99% uh-huh. of the time when a guy has sex, he gets off. There's no mystery to it. It's just going to happen, right? Well, unfortunately, 
a man's timetable, like a guy might get off in 20 seconds, 30 seconds. But unfortunately, a woman's timetable is pretty slow. It might be 20 minutes to get her engine warmed up where all the parts are moving correctly and, you know, she's into it and she's, you know, feeling good and feeling sexy. And then the moment might come along 20 minutes from now. So just acknowledge that the two bodies were completely different. So, so a lot of times time. women will cheat because she's pissed at the guy. So and one area that women get pissed about is that she's not being gratified sexually. Hmm. I mean, not only with the orgasm, but like anything physical that you do. In other words, you might be a sloppy kisser. You might be a wet kisser. She doesn't like that. Or you might be drooling in her ear and she doesn't like that. Or maybe she really likes to have the back of her neck. She likes to have that caressed and touched. And guess what? You're emitting that. You're not doing that. So, you know, all these little pieces add up to she's not getting a successful moment. She's, she's not getting full robust moment like you are. And it's actually very true. I remember you saying in your book that, and last time you spoke, so that sex pretty much begins when you start talking to her, which very, very true because uh, women, they're not all 100% physical. Like you said, a lot to do. It has a lot to do with confidence and the man that can kind of turn a woman on and kind of start to get that ball rolling. But is there any other things that you feel that men are doing wrong besides the whole sexual thing? And is it always a man's fault or can the woman just kind of just be a bitch at some point? <laughs> I guess she can be a bitch, but I guess she's being a bitch because you haven't gotten the job done with the four C's. But by the way, that's what I call the four tenets of winning the girl over the confidence, connect with her caring and, and uh, character. So yeah, I think it's not always the guy's fault, but when sexually speaking, there are elements that you can add or subtract that will make her make her experience more satisfying. And you just have to, she has to reveal what those are and you have to discuss it and find out what those are. So I think guys, biologically speaking, they go after how a woman looks, mm -hmm. whereas women sexually speaking, they get turned on by what they hear. And by the way, texting and social media is a form of hearing because when she's reading that written word, she's saying it aloud in her, in her head. So it's still in her mind, it's still an auditory function. In other words, it's not a function where she's visually looking with her eyes to see something. So very, very true. You can play to that. So you can make that phone call and you guys have this low, deep, sexy voice and that turns her on. Or you can, uh, let's say you're meeting her at seven o'clock tonight. Well, during the daytime, maybe send two, three sexting messages, you know, short, quick, you know, like a few words or one liners or whatever. Here's what I'm planning on doing to you tonight or something like this. This is somebody that you know a little bit better, not a first date. <laughs> but send a couple of text messages to get get that engine moving because like I say, her body works a lot slower than yours. So you you can use some of these little tips to kinda, you know, by the time you get there at seven o'clock, she's already thinking in that manner. Do you think men should kind of space out their text messages a bit, like not not reply right away? Or do you think that kind of doesn't matter? It depends on the context. It depends on if she's already a steady girlfriend. It depends on so many different things. But spacing it out a little bit sometimes helps. What I would do is 
I would, uh, I write this in my book, it's called intermittent reinforcement, mix it up. Like one day, you might be bam, 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 you might be responding to her texts like within milliseconds. Mm-hmm. But maybe three days later, hey, maybe it takes you two hours to respond. So I would just change it up, like keep her guessing. Perfect. Okay, because I know a lot of guys, we always in, in like this dating community and stuff like that, a lot of people kind of go back and forth with that. Some people say, oh, just text her when you feel like it. It doesn't matter. Some people say, you know, it's rude to uh, not reply right away. And then on the flip side, I have guys that freak out because a girl hasn't texted them, you know, 10 minutes on Facebook or whatever. And they just like freak out and decide that, oh my God, it's because I'm a loser and she doesn't want to date me. And then like 15 minutes after that, she ended up texting them and the freak out was for nothing. So I just thought that <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, she's just in the shower or something. And I, I also wanted to bring up one thing too, because you brought up social media and it's actually very funny that you actually said that. Um, I, I've, I've actually attracted women that have actually um, just went through some of the things that I said on social media and decided to reach out to me and stuff like that. And we, we'd end up talking for a bit. So I, I've, I found that very interesting how you connected that in, in her mind. Cause I've actually never thought of it that, that way that in her mind, when she reads it, she's thinking it. So it's words to her like out loud. And I just never thought of that. So I just wanted to touch on that. I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but I wanted to go into the closing questions and the closing questions. There's going to be three of them. There are a little bit more personal questions. I like to ask my guests just so the audience can kind of get to see a deeper side of them. But before I go go into those, this is a very important question. And a lot of people, men and women, have a tough time with this part when it happens in a relationship. But what advice do you have for people? Well well men, we'll, we'll stick we'll stick with men. What advice do you have for men who are really feeling the pain of a tough breakup, especially if they were with the person for many years or even married? Yeah, I do have a chapter devoted to that. It's called DT's detox and the bottom line of that I mean let's say you were just really punked out by this woman or maybe you were just so emotionally wrapped up their ways with this woman and you break up either it's a breakup or a divorce you have to go through emotional detox so to speak and the bottom line of it is avoidance for six months so what that means is you can't play your favorite song that you had you can't go back over those E- those cute little emails that you save that thought she was so cute or whatever, or she was so funny. You can't drive by her house or her work because that, that reminds you of her. You just totally have to disconnect. And it's so hard to do. First two weeks, you might as well just slit your wrist because it's really hard in the beginning. But as time oh, yeah. goes on, it gets easier and easier. Now, the problem comes in about a month into it, you just have a relapse. You go back and you you smell that sweater that she gave you for Christmas and it makes you think of her. And if you relapse, you're only human. It's totally mm-hmm. fine. So I would say you just have to start the clock all over again. And so start it over again and you get to that one month mark again and you want to relapse again. But hey, you got to start the six month clock all over again. After you do that once or twice, it's too painful. So the duration gets long, the detox gets longer and longer until finally you make it to the six month mark where there's no contact, no remembrances, no sentimentality. And then at that point, you'll be emotionally over it. 
And I'm actually pretty sure there's actual studies and scientific data to actually back that up that I think it's the six month mark really takes to really get over um, a relationship roughly. Do you recommend that men don't date at all during that six month period? Or do you think a woman or another woman can kind of make it a little bit easier for them? You know, a lot of guys, their way of dealing with it is to hop back into the sack again. But the problem with that is I see it as a replacement that you're replacing the feeling for the old person with the new person. And if the new person doesn't have any substance to it, if it's just a sex only situation, you're still back at square one. It's better to acknowledge why the breakdown occurred. And the best way that I know of to do that is ask what your part in the demise of the end of the relationship was. She might have been a bitch. She might have been horrible. She might have taken the kids. She might have taken you to the cleaners financially, whatever. I had this one guy who was divorced from his wife for 10 years. He couldn't get over it. And I asked him one question, and that one question made him get over it. And the one question was, okay, she did all these horrible things to you and she's she's mean and angry and whatever. And I realize you have a lot of burden and anger on your shoulders over this. And I asked him, what was your part in the demise of the marriage? And that changed the whole thing for him. Because mm. it's, it's, you know, to be in a relationship, it's not a one-way street. Very part true. of it is her dance. Part of it is your dance. So by looking at, oh, yeah, I did do this, I did do this part, and that's what contributed and caused her reaction in this area over here. So once he did that self-actualization thing of, you know, his part might have only been 10% him and 90% wrongdoing on her. It doesn't matter. You still have to acknowledge what was your part in the demise. And that kind of helps you get over things, too. And it helps you learn from it. Because the takeaway is you can bring that into the next relationship and not do that again or make that area better in your life to where the new, you don't experience that with the new person because now you've really learned the lesson. Something I also want to add to that, um, just in general, with any area in your life, it's also better to focus on things that you can control, like to focus on things that you actually did, because then it kind of empowers you more. So you're not helpless. You just kind of really take responsibility for your part, and it just empowers you more. It makes you realize that you are in control of your life again, and for you to kind of sit back and be, you know, this victim who's on the couch eating ice cream and calling his friends and talking about it every five seconds. Yeah, and the car way that the universe works or this is what I have found to be true is that if you don't acknowledge what that element was guess what the universe is going to continue to give you that lesson again and again and again until it finally stops you in your tracks and you finally learn the lesson mm. Mm. so right. let's say Let's say that you didn't learn it with this woman, you break up, whatever. Guess what? The universe is going to send you the same type of woman because, hey, you didn't learn it over there. So I guess we got to dish it out to him again. <laughs> and this might happen three, four more times. So it's a lot of pain. It's a lot of trouble. Do you really want to go there? Just look at it once, get it right, get it done the first time around. If you need specific tips on the steps on, on how to do the detox, it's all in that chapter. It's a, it's. It's one of my favorite chapters, actually, because I personally had to do this myself when I was going through a bad breakup with 
somebody that I was just completely, you know, punked out over. And um, I tried so many millions of things and I couldn't get over them. I couldn't get over them. But, you know, I did the detox for six months. Bam, I was done. Did you feel yeah. that when you went through that experience that you were able to find yourself more and find a, kind of learn more about who you are as a person? Definitely. Def- definitely. It's, very, it's a very self-revealing place to be in, but it's a gracious place to be in. I mean, you're being kind to yourself by finally getting to the bottom of it. And it's mm. not a pain that you want to go through again. So you might as well learn it now. Mm. Very true. Absolutely. All right, Linda. So we're going to go into the closing questions that I told you about. And the first question is, who were two of your role models you looked up to in your life and why? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Well, probably Oprah because <laughs> talk show host, 25 years of success. The impact that she has made on her, on her world is just, you can't even measure it. It just trickles down in so many different areas. Oh, yeah. Uh, not only was it the subject matters that she talked about, but there was oftentimes, especially in her later years, there was also an underlying element of how can I touch you personally? How can I better the world? How can I better you as a person like they might have been talking about who knows what getting a second career or surviving rape or like whatever the topic was but there was always the last five or ten years there was this underlying element how can my subject matter improve you as a person and therefore improve all of us collectively as the world and i i like that that element i try to do that in my teachings as well yeah, very true. When you think about Oprah and you really look at it, she really shaped a lot of our culture with everything she did. So yeah. very, very phenomenal. My other current role model is Bethany Frankel. She started off with seven years ago, whenever it was, she was a real housewife of New York and she was a nobody. She was a caterer and she was broke and she was always constantly scrambling to get you know to pay her rent and she was hobnobbing with all her customers who were all these highfalutin customers millionaires best parts of new york what have you and then she tried out for martha stewart's apprentice which was a spin-off of donald trump's apprentice and she ended up being in the number two position out of all the contestants So anyway, the thing that I like about her is that she went from zero, like absolute zero, like not being able to pay her rent to now she's a multimillionaire. She made most of her money because she came up with a cocktail and the cocktail was called Skinny Margarita. And it was the very first margarita that only had 100 calories. Normally, margaritas are like five, 600 calories if you make them the standard way. So she knew that women were calorie conscious and they wanted to maintain their figure. She gave them a way to enjoy one of their favorite drinks, but still not rack up the calories. And she ended up selling that margarita to Seagram's and made almost a billion dollars off of that one sale. Oh, wow. The thing I like about her is she, to me, is the guru of branding. So it's not that she has skinny girl books and skinny girl cocktails and skinny girl recipes. It's, It's not that. She has found a way that all roads lead to her. 
and the products and services that I offer are a reflection of my lifestyle and who I am as a person. So I kind of like that attitude too. I like that that take too, because even though today I might be writing about books and men's rights and talk show about men's rights and this and that and the other, tomorrow I would like to come out with a line of Linda Gross sheet because it relates to dating and the bedroom and whatever. And I would like it to feel good and have good quality and fit the bed nicely. And so I, I like the way that she brands her products and services. So I guess to her, she's, she's a role model in a sense for me. Mm, those those sheets are a great idea, actually, especially <laughs> if we're able to have a Valentine's Day special or something. Yeah, um, and if, I like if, to if, cook, so it'd be cool to have like Linda Gross cookware. I mean, you know, I mean, sky's the limit. I mean, just because I'm talking in in one or two or three of these areas now doesn't mean I'm just going to limit myself to just one thing. Oh, definitely. Everyone should follow their passions. And I was going to say, if uh, that woman ever writes a book, she should call it The Margarita Millionaire. I think that would be a great title. Just That's, just saying. That is a good title. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, next question. What would you do if you only had one day left to live? Oh, my gosh. Whew. I would probably spend it with my family and and travel. I would get on a jet plane somewhere or get somebody someplace really quick, quickly because I'm a very visual person. So I like nice surroundings and visually pleasing things to the eye to look at, whether it's a waterfall or an ocean or an island or like whatever it is. It could be a ski resort. I, I just visually like to be stimulated. Do you have one place in mind that you'd like to go? Oh, too many to name. I went to Alaska a few years ago, and that was just completely amazing. It's to see these gigantic glaciers. They're like a mile wide and several miles deep, and this big giant piece of ice comes crashing into the ocean, and it just makes the most amazing dynamite explosion when this big piece of ice crashes into the ocean. So that's always a fun place. I'd like to see the European version in the uh, the Netherlands and the fjords and stuff like that. I'm sure that would be fun too. It's probably similar. And then plus they have the midnight sun there where like in the summertime stays bright for 20 hours, but in the at in the winter time the bad thing is it stays bright for only like 4 hours a day. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Never heard yeah. of that. Yeah. So many places I'd love to visit. I'd like to do the south of France. I'd like to do Africa one day. Say the, the like safaris to to- are like so amazing to see the safaris. I'd love to see the Great Wall of China. I'd like to see the hustle bustle of Hong Kong. <laughs> the people that are afraid of, I talked a little bit about this on my show today, the people that are afraid to travel, it's just, I don't oh, know. they're missing out. They're crazy. They're really missing out. You get to see a different culture and different languages and what kind of food they eat and different customs and different traditions. And it just opens your horizons and makes you a bigger person just by having the experience of, hey, it's just not all about you and your little you know piece of dirt. Mm-hmm. Other people handle themselves completely different than the way you handle yourself. And it might be for good. And it might be for worse, but it's good to see the differences because even the people that handle themselves worse, at least you come back and you appreciate what you have. Very so true. It's all good. It's all, you know, big eye opening experience. It's all a learning experience. Very, very true. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to traveling more myself. Um, so far, I've only really been to the Caribbean 
other than Canada and the U.S. So I'm looking forward to traveling some more. Um, last question, and this is a big one. How do you want to be remembered after you die? That she helped people. Awesome. I think that's my core thing. I'm just, I'm a helper. I, I'm a problem solver. I like to negotiate. I like to take a bad experience and turn it into a positive experience. Like, what can we learn from this? How can we ap apply it to our future endeavors and be successful? So I'd say my headstone would, something, would be something like, you know, she helped people or she helped love, change love the world. That. <laughs> that's that's always uh this this question always gets the most humblest answers when i first originally put it out there i was expecting people to say i want monuments of me and folklore about my accomplishments <laughs> <laughs> that, that is what i was expecting when i first started asking that question but it's always been the opposite like the most humble thing so <laughs> that's cool but yeah, well, well, Linda, it's been awesome having you on the show again. We'll, we'll definitely have you back on again in the near future. Everyone who wants to buy her book, I will leave a link to the description below. Also a link to her website if you guys kind of want to reach out to her and ask her for some advice and learn more about what she does. And Linda, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to say before we close out? No, I think that's good. I have one-on-one -on -one coaching also on my website. They go to themensadvocate.com forward slash coaching. Some of these problems that we talked about, maybe above and beyond the book, you need a little bit more help than the book is offering you. And I can reach out to you. I have a lot of customers who have had lifelong problems. And usually I can solve most of their issues within four sessions or less. So I've had people that have gone to a therapist for five years, eight years, 10 years, and they still haven't gotten their problems handled, get it done in like four sessions or less. So definitely worth checking into. Yeah, guys, the reason why she's on the show is actually I know a lot of people, a lot of men on my social media and in, in the social media circle that I have met through the whole dating world and the whole self-improvement and self-help world. A lot of them have really told me that the Linda's a really great person at what she does. And I originally heard her on Alan Roger Curry show. And for those of you who are familiar with this part of the internet self-improvement world, you know that Alan Roger Curry has been around for a really long time. And that's how I originally found out about her. And I learned more about her and I spoke to more men who have worked with her and uh, it's been positive every single time. So I just thought I'd point that out there. Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been an awesome experience. I always love coming on your show and happy to do it again anytime you need.